I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be um, reading towards the end of that chapter. Uh, it's page 1486 if you have a church Bible in your hands. There's a whole stack of them on the table back there if you need one. Um, we've been doing a, a fairly lengthy series through the gospel, uh, one year in and halfway through. And um, I want to pick up this extraordinary passage in Mark 8 from verse 27 in which uh, Jesus turns to his disciples and has a moment of transparent conversation with them. And if you recall, it's come on the back of these various encounters he's had with people in this chapter who perceive him with different lenses. There's the Pharisees and the disciples and the, the blind man who is healed, and all of them look at Jesus with different lenses. And everyone brings their assumptions to who this man is which I think elicits this question that we're about to discover from Jesus. Uh, Let's read then from verse 27. It says, When Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ or the Messiah. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is the name Jesus uses of himself, particularly in this gospel, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I want to think about this passage through the lens of Jesus Questions. And I think that questions are incredibly powerful. There are certain questions in life uh, that have the power to actually change the direction of your life. And I recall um, moments in my childhood when, you know, one of those questions was, What do you want to do with your life? And that was a question that weighed heavily with me um, as I felt something of God stirring in my heart to become a pastor. But A question such as, what are you going to do with your life, can change, literally change the direction of your life. It's a pivotal question, isn't it? Or the question, will you marry me? I remember when I asked C that question on a boat on the Serpentine in Hyde Park. Uh, How many years ago now? So 15 years ago? Something like that. She doesn't know. Uh, (laughs) she, She cried. That's what happened. She cried. And explain that in whatever way you want, but one thing it did was mark that that was a very important question. And there are questions, therefore, that can change your life. There are questions in life that you want to avoid. Like, what, what were you doing? Or, why did you do this? Or, are you telling the truth? Or when you're in an airport, what is the purpose of your visit? <laughs> if you're anything like me, it always makes me feel nervous. I start sweating. I feel like, I, don't, I hope they don't, they're not measuring my 
my temperature at that moment with one of those infrared things because for some reason I just feel guilty and like I've got something to hide. And there are questions which <clears throat> you wish someone would ask you because of their power to get beneath the surface. Like, how can I really help you? Or how can, do you feel loved by me right now? You see how questions have the potential to, to penetrate and to dig into the deeper things in our hearts and lives. And there are many innocuous questions that we use every day, but there are certain questions upon which life can change direction and which have a real important weight upon them. And the Bible is full of such questions. I think about moments like, um, and actually if you read the Gospels, you'll find that one of Jesus' chief methods of teaching is to ask questions. When people try and, and, and put him on the spot, he very often turns it around with a question which exposes their heart motives. But all through the Bible, we find that there are these questions which get to the root of things. Such as when Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit in the garden. What does God ask them? As it says, he was walking in the cool of the day. He says, where are you? And of course, the question is much weightier than merely, where are you physically? But it signaled a change that had happened on a spiritual level. A separation that had happened between them and God. Why were they hiding? Why were they not enjoying transparent intimacy with the Father who'd made them? Where are you? You think about that moment in the book of Job, which is a lengthy meditation on the reality of suffering within the sovereign plan of God. And there's a moment when having, having thought through and agonized over the question of why God would allow this to happen to him. In Job's suffering, suddenly God enters the scene and begins to speak to Job. And what does he say? He says, who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. In other words, you're talking about things you don't understand. He says, dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. He says, he says stand up, I'm going to ask you a question. And then his question comes, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And so begins a lengthy kind of series of questions in which God gets to the very root of, Ad, of Job's theology of everything, essentially, and puts him in his place and leads to a deep humbling of Job in that moment. Or another question which comes in the book of Acts, when you remember how when the early church began to ignite like a spark had hit tinder, and there was this, this, this burgeoning movement happening that just began in Jerusalem. Very quickly... There's a persecution that arises on account of this new message about this, this man who had died and risen from the dead. And one of the, the most vehement opponents is, is this man that we now know as Paul, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul. But then, being of the sect of the Pharisees, he opposes it. He's there when Stephen is stoned to death and it says he was there giving approval to his death. But then Christ confronts him in his resurrected, ascended form on the road where he's blinded, and what does Jesus ask him? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And with that question, the entire direction of, of his life changes. Questions are incredibly powerful. And I say that because in this passage, I think we come to, I think we're treading on holy ground. I think we come to, in many ways, the heart of this gospel, 
right in the middle of this gospel, when Jesus is asking the question, which comes to us as the readers who've been tracking our way through and you've been seeing all the wonderful things he's doing, and then it comes to this incredibly important question. Who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? And I'm not sure that there is another question in life that comes close to that in importance. Partly because God has so designed things that he made Jesus the dividing line of history, the separator of mankind. How you answer that question is, certainly from a biblical angle, the most important thing about you. So you you sense the weightiness of this moment when Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them, who am I? Who am I? Now, I want to, I want to therefore, I want to show you the remarkable nature of this question from four different angles. And uh, here we go. Here's the first. You should notice that this question is unashamedly focused upon Jesus himself. Now, the reason why I stress that is because if you think about that, it's quite a strange thing. Jesus has a moment where he's, He's turns to his disciples and he's interested in what's happening around them, among the crowds. And he's, he, doesn't ask them, he doesn't ask them how people are understanding his teaching, which you might expect from a great teacher or a philosopher. How is my teaching coming across? Do people understand the things I'm saying? That it would be of utmost concern to someone who is interested purely in the ideas that they're communicating. But Jesus doesn't ask that. And he doesn't ask them whether people have grasped his purpose or his mission. You think about movement leaders in history. Most of what they're about is what they're there to accomplish. But Jesus doesn't ask the question, how do people understand my purpose or my mission on earth? No, instead, he asks, who do people think that I am? Which means that Jesus said, though those other questions are important, even deeper and more important still is the question of his identity. Now, think about another famous verse that comes in John's Gospel, where Jesus says the words, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that, again, is a similar tone, but it should strike you as a very strange thing for a man to say. Because he doesn't say, I will show you the way. You know, most, most people who have who have, have influenced in history, have said things like that. I'll show you the way. And you think about the influence of a man like the Buddha. What was it that people found amazing about him was his way of life, such that they wanted to imitate him and they venerated him. He was, he was saying, in a sense, I will show you the way. And of course, within Buddhism, you have the eightfold path, don't you? But, and then you look at a man like the prophet Muhammad, And his teacher, he was saying, look at what I'm saying. Look at the teaching. Look at the revelation. The attention is not on the man. The attention is on the body of ideas which he's communicating. But Jesus stands apart from these men and many other like them in history because he says, no, look at who I am. And that should strike you as something very provocative and strange to our ears. He's unashamed In other words, in drawing the attention to himself in asking you the question, who do you say that I am? Now, why would he ask that question? And the the answer that the Bible gives us as as we begin to understand more of his identity in the pages of Scripture, 
the answer the Bible gives us is that essentially everything is about him. In the book of Ephesians, where Paul opens that letter, and he gives, there's this, there's this long sentence that just spills out from his pen. It's just, he tumbles out with truth after truth after truth, and it runs on for verses and verses and verses without a break or a breath. And at one point, he's talking about this, and he says that God, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And he's saying, listen, this is what the whole thing has been about from the beginning of creation all the way to its end. He said it's all about Jesus. That's the Father's desire. That's the Father's will, to make everything about the Son. What that means for you is that in a sense, when, when a person is wrestling with the, the Christian faith, you'll, you'll encounter many obstacles. You'll encounter teaching over here, which maybe if you've been, even been a Christian for years, you think, I struggle with this dimension of what we believe. Or there'll be some stumbling block over here where you're thinking about becoming a Christian, but you think, I just can't get over this point. And my advice, and this is something I also live by in my own life, is that the most helpful thing you can ever do is sort of clear away all of that rubble and get back to the central thing. Who is he? When, I'm, when I find myself, you know, as you sometimes do, late at night and your mind begins to whir, and you, your brain can get, go ahead of itself, and can't it? And you feel the anxiety of doubt or of, of questions or these kinds of things. When those kind of moments happen to me, I must come back to this question. Who is he? Because I found that when you get back to that bedrock, the reality of Jesus, everything else seems to make sense in the light of him. Everything does. So this question is unashamedly focused upon Jesus himself. Here's a second thing. This question puts you on the spot. The question puts you on the spot. Now, I want you to just notice how Jesus does this. Because it's interesting. He, he doesn't actually attack it face on to begin with, does he? He comes from the side to begin with. When he turns to his disciples and asks them, who do pe- people say that I am? Which gives his disciples just a moment to think about this question. And to think of it in a, in a more objective and less personally threatening way. We can, we can talk about what the crowds think about Jesus more easily than what we than, than our own issues. And that's just, by the way, a good piece of advice for anyone who's contemplating Christ. Before you think about the cost of believing in him, just look at him in his own right, as it were, and look at him side on, and just consider him in a more objective way. But Jesus asked him the question, who do people say that I am? He doesn't ask the question because he's somehow, you know, he's just sort of wondering, what's the gossip? So what are people saying about me? What, what's going on? Tell me, guys, come on. It's not like that. And because Jesus knows, of course, what people are saying about him. This is all a way of making disciples start to think. And so he puts it back upon them. And then, of course, he gets to the sharper point. Okay, now who do you say that I am? Now, the, way, the reason why Jesus does this is because he's using a method, a kind of method that teachers have used all through the ages, of trying to help you think in which you run through the possibilities and start eliminating all the wrong answers before you can arrive at the right one. It's called the Socratic method. 
And I think that's what Jesus is leading us to. He's using questions to lead them along that pathway. And we've got to eliminate some options here. One of the great things they had to eliminate in their minds long before they could arrive at the truth, and it seems to me that when Peter finally says, you're the Christ, I think he, even in that moment, he has a moment of like, eye-opening revelation. Something has just happened to him. Just mirrors the miracle, doesn't it, of what just happened to the blind man, healed and his eyes open. Suddenly Peter, in a similar way, sees it. But one of the things they've got to get off the table here is the possibility of allowing mere admiration for Jesus. This is what the crowds are. Um, this is what the crowds are experiencing. Jesus, okay, there were a certain cra- group of people who didn't like Jesus, and they were the Jerusalem sect, the kind of religious authorities. But by and large, most of the ordinary folk in Israel, particularly in the north where Jesus was from, and you know, shout out for any northerners, those people were loving Jesus. And they were really full of admiration for him. So when he asked the question, who do people say that I am? You see the answers that the disciples start rattling off. They say, oh, you're, you're John the Baptist, which, by the way, makes no sense. Because anyone who'd been around for long enough would have seen them side by side. And everyone knows that's a dead giveaway that they're not the same person. But anyway, John the Baptist had been beheaded. So some people think he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Other people say he's Elijah or they say he's one of the prophets. One of the prophets raised from the dead. Someone like Isaiah or someone like that. And of course, Elijah, the myth of the kind of idea of Elijah was because Elijah had been taken up in a fiery chariot. He'd never actually died. And there was this idea that had built up around him as being someone who was like a comforter to the saints, who kind of helped people from heaven, from his place in heaven, and would one day return, based on a, a word in the, in the book of Malachi that said he would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So there was this idea, one day Elijah's coming back and that will signal a great change. And so there's all these kind of myths floating around about who Jesus is. And one of the things you've got to notice, of course, is that even though there's so much love and admiration for Christ at this moment, that falls far short. Because none of these are the right answers. He's not just like other men, and he's certainly not just a prophet. Another thing that he won't allow here is he's, He's dealing with the problem of what you can think of as like lazy groupthink. Now, this is like a psychological phenomenon among humankind. We have this tendency, as a rule, to struggle to think independently and to rather go along with what others are saying and what, what we've been told and what often the majority or a significant minority believe about things. And this is just the way we are. It's very rare to meet someone who is a truly independent thinker. You know, and... Uh, this example didn't really land very well this morning, but we'll see how it goes today. But, you know, just think about the clothes you're wearing, right? They, okay, some of you may think you're, you're pretty eccentric, but basically they fall within a certain boundary of what's acceptable, generally speaking. And my proof of that is that no one here is wearing a codpiece. And, yeah, it didn't land well this morning either, but that's because I don't think anyone knows what a codpiece is except Tom, who loves his history. There's a 15th century piece of... I won't even describe it to you. You can Google it later. It's very interesting. But anyway... The, uh, this is, these are one of the, we are, we basically are a, a, a kind of herd mentality, uh, animal, aren't we? In the sense that we love to go along with what, what is popular, what people think. And one of the things that Jesus does here when he says, who do people say that I am? And then he turns it around and says, but who do you say that I am? Is he's calling you, he's calling all of us as just as he calls his disciples to confront that question for yourself, because almost by definition, what it means to be a Christian 
is that you are willing to believe something which goes against the public view. And that can then be costly. And it might mean disagreeing with family, or tribe, or people group. And that's what the disciples were being called to here. And so what he's basically trying to do through these questions, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Is he's drawing from his disciples this moment of realization in which they state a true confession. I was remembering those verses in the book of Romans where Paul talks about the importance and the power of confessing Christ. And he puts it like this. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And of course, what Paul is not allowing and what Jesus doesn't allow either is the idea that you can merely trot off the words like some kind of magic spell and suddenly you're saved. It doesn't mean that. But rather to say the words and to say them sincerely has immense weight. Think about the word Lord. What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord except to say that he owns you? What does it mean to say that Jesus is Christ except to say that he has a claim on the cosmos? It's his. So when these words come out of our mouth sincerely and truly, with that is the surrender of everything we are, everything we have, everything we love unto him as Lord. This question, who do you say that I am, puts you on the spot. Here's a third thing I notice about this. This question then interrogates the nature of your beliefs. In other words, the content of what you think about Jesus now, let me, let me approach this like this. What do you think is the greatest threat to Christianity? What is it that could cause a person to lose their faith or a church to die as many churches have died or entire denominations to die or indeed whole nations to turn away from the Christian faith? What is it that does that? And I think we can rule out some wrong answers here. I don't think it's persecution. Just heard on the radio this morning someone was saying that Christianity is the most persecuted faith in the world. And yet, of course, against that backdrop, you have unbelievable growth. There's one of the early church fathers who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the more that Christians are killed, the more Christianity multiplies because of the power of its message. And certainly that was true in the first four centuries of the church. It's not persecution that can wipe this thing out. One of the great things you might answer then, well, what about, what about the seduction of the secular world in which we live with all of its obsession with, with hedonism, with, um, with pleasure-seeking and with money and all those things, all those glossy things which are offered to us. And I say, look, of course that's a threat, always, because the Christian life requires a, a redefinition of what you think is right. However, even that cannot cannot truly threaten the heart of the Christian faith because ultimately people try that stuff and they realize it's vacuous and empty and they long for something deeper and Christ is better. Even our clumsy efforts to try and disciple the next generation and particularly our children is not enough to thwart this thing or derail it because God is gracious and he's kind. But I'll tell you what I think is the right answer to this question. The thing which is most threatening to the Christian faith is always 
a distortion, a diminishment, a change in what we believe about Jesus himself. And with that, the gospel that he preached. When Christ is neutered, when he's reduced, when he's changed and diminished, Christianity dies. Christianity dies. And this has happened, I could give you many examples, but let me just give you a few quick examples. You think about the state of Christendom in the West in the 1500s, just before Martin Luther smashed onto the scene. And he did smash, he was a smasher. It's like the Incredible Hulk, smashing everything. But anyway, before he came onto the scene, the Catholic Church had had a warped view of who Jesus was, such that there was a man called Tetzel uh, going around Europe, particularly Germany, selling these pieces of paper that they called indulgences, which if you purchased one, you could ensure that you and your relatives would not, go in, would not be in purgatory. And what was this except an absolute distortion of the message of Christianity? It was a reduced gospel. It was a reduced Christ. And the church was, in effect, dead. Not everywhere but in a large part. And then Luther came on and he said, no, he'd read the Bible. The book of Romans says that we're saved by faith alone through Christ alone. And things began to light up again. You think about how one of the questions that we're wrestling with, that we, Jeremy was just talking to you about, is this issue of, of Western imperial ambitions that with that brought brought the, the kind of the dangerous view that Christ is, is a white Western figure. And of course, to make him that is to diminish him. Christ stands over humanity, and yet we want to make him a sectarian figure. And in diminishing him, the power of Christianity is also diminished. Well, you think about the Jesus of so much celebrity culture these days. When Jesus is my homeboy type attitude, where celebrities basically, you know, their lifestyle and their profession of faith do not match. And so Jesus is there to sanction the indulgence of lust and of greed and of all the rubbish that they're involved in. And you think that isn't the Jesus that we see in the pages of Scripture. Or the Jesus of the mainline denominations in the Western church where He's become this softer than soft figure who is more interested in the inclusiveness of the church. And all the threatening and rough edges of the real Christ have been knocked off. And what you end up with is a dead Christianity. When Jesus is reduced, in other words, Christianity dies. That is always the problem. Now, I think the reason I'm stressing this, friends, is because the force of the way Christ confronts Peter in this moment carries with it this sense. Jesus tells Peter, Peter's just made a confession, a true confession, you're the Christ. And and Jesus is very happy that he sees something, that he sees something. But then when Jesus explains to him what it means for him to be the Christ, according to the prophecies like the one uh, Jeremy is just reading from in Isaiah 53, that the Christ must suffer and die. And he says it here in, in, in verse uh, 31. He says, It began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter, it says, 
rebuked him. I mean, the balls of that guy to, go, to stand up to Jesus and to rebuke him. I can't quite believe he did it. But do you know why? It's because it threatened his deeper sensibilities about what Christ had come to do. He had this imagined narrative that was a piece, piecing together of the Jewish thought at the time that the Messiah would come and that he would conquer their oppressors, he would conquer the Romans. And so even though the Jerusalem sect was sneering at them at the time, Peter was thinking, yeah, we'll show you. One day Jesus is going to rule and we're going to be ruling with him. And there was this kind of like sense of, yeah, we're going to win in the end. And Jesus comes and just smashes his whole notion of how this whole thing was going to work. He says, no, don't you understand? I have to die. I have to die. And it, it, it causes Peter's world in that instant to crumble. It's that, that, that rabbit in the headlight sense of panic, which is why he suddenly grabs Jesus and says, no. Now, the reason why I think this is so vital for us to understand is because the force of this is, is to recognize that either, either you have a Christ who is accommodated to our preconceptions of what he ought to be like, and then weirdly, he ends up agreeing with everything that we already believed, or you have a Christ who you take him at his own word, and you take him as he as he comes to you in the pages of the scriptures and you realize that you are confronted by a man of deep holiness, a man of fierce wrath against sin, a man of unbelievable and tender mercy for people who come to him asking for his kindness, a man who makes demands upon his followers such that some say, I cannot do this, and they walk away, a man who calls upon you to die so that you can follow him. A man who would says, look, it's what I will accomplish for you on the cross, which is of more importance than what you think you can do for yourself. And when you see Jesus as he is, that is where the power is in the Christian faith. This brings me to my last point. This question, who do you say that I am? is fundamentally an invitation or a call to worship. And the reason I say that is, look, aside from the mere fact that he's confronting you to question your belief about him, who is he? Make a decision. Look at him on his own terms and reckon with the claims he makes about himself. Yes, all of that is true. But basically, underneath that is the deeper purpose and call, which is that, Jesus is inviting us to be worshippers. And so really the question behind the question, when he says, who do you say that I am? The question that lies behind the question is, well, is he worthy? Is he worthy? my, My observation, it's not unique to me or original to me, is that we live in an age in which the issue of worthiness has become incredibly important to us because there was once upon a time it was possible for our heroes to be so set on a pedestal because we didn't really know much about them that they were not really open to our criticism. But suddenly we live in a day and an age in which everything about us is exposed 
to a watching world. And even the best of men and the best of women are seen for what they are, which is deeply flawed. You think about some of the most influential people of the last century and the good that they did. One of the great criticisms Christopher Hitchens leveled against Mother Teresa, for example, was he said she was a fraud. All her years of doing all this good work, she actually had crushing doubts about her faith. Now, I don't think it's for me to judge, but he's saying, look, she wasn't as perfect as you think she was. You think about Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King, men who changed the world, men who were worthy of our admiration, and yet men who, in their private lives, had failed, were sexually incontinent. And you think, when you ask the question, is that person worthy? It doesn't matter who you look at. Again and again, you say, no, they're not. They're not worthy. There's things I can admire about them, but basically they're not worthy. When Jesus is asking you, who do you say that I am? He's inviting you to a contemplation of his reality in which you are called to ask this question. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of my worship? Is he worthy of me bowing down to him? And I want to provoke you with what he says here. When he said that the son of man must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and after three days rise from the dead. Ask yourself these questions. Who else has suffered for you as Christ has? I know that many people have suffered for us. Your mother would be a good example of this. Vomited for days when you were pregnant, pushed you out of her body with all the blood and the mess that came with that, and then woke up all through the night feeding you and suffered for you. But even what your mother did for you doesn't come close to what Christ has done. Because what it says about us in the scriptures is that Christ, he knows you. And yet he suffered for you. Even your mum doesn't know you to the degree that Jesus does. Who else has suffered for you as Christ has? And in fact, it says not only does he know you and suffer for you, he actually suffered for you because he knows you. Because he knows your flaws. Because he knows the mess in your life. That was exactly why he had to suffer. Or ask yourself this question. Who else was rejected for you as Christ was? It seems to me that these days most of the leaders and people who are put on a stage are craving acceptance, craving adoration. And we talk about, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about influencers. And basically, what are they? They're attention seekers. And they're, they're rewarded by us giving them our attention. It's a very, very sad thing. The economy of attention. And yet Jesus... It says explicitly in the Bible that he came to be spat upon, he came to be mocked, he came to be derided, he came to experience rejection. That same chapter that Jeremy was reading from in Isaiah 53 says, in describing the sufferings of this servant, he says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Of course, anyone who has reckoned with the reality of who Jesus is knows that all he had to do at any point was open his mouth and he could breathe words of destruction upon his enemies. But it tells us he didn't open his mouth because he came to absorb the rejection that he experienced on our behalf. Then ask the question, well, who else has died for you? 
I know that many people have died for causes and for people groups. And you think about the martyrs I mentioned already. A man like William Tyndale, who made it his life's aim to translate the scriptures from the original Hebrew and Greek into the English so that the common man could understand the Bible. Made that his aim and he died for that because at the time the Catholic Church ruled it illegal. And you think about the many people who've lived before us who died to make sure that we could hear the gospel. Of course people have died for us, soldiers have died for us to make sure that we enjoy freedoms. But when the Bible says that Jesus died for you, it doesn't mean in that very general sense that he died for you. It means it in a much more specific and direct sense. He died actually for you. And I see this in places like John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. In other words, he says, in my, in my heart and in my mind, I know who my people are. I know them by name. I know you by name. And he says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, it's with that much intimacy that he knows you. And this is, I lay down my life for the sheep. Not in a generic way, but in a very specific and very personal way, he lays down his life for you. And then let me ask one final question. Who else has been raised from the dead for you? Even if you could explain away the other things that I've been describing today, there is no other man in history who has been raised from the dead as Christ was, as a firstborn from among the dead. And the Bible tells us that is a solid rock upon which we base our faith and our belief that Jesus is worthy. The book of Colossians puts it like this. It says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, if you imagine the grave is a great prism that holds all of humankind. Jesus is the first one to have punctured his way out of that prism in order that he would be preeminent, in order that he would be the ruler of a new race. And so we come to the image in the book of Revelation. When in Revelation chapter 4, John is beginning to describe. He's describing the scene in the courtroom of heaven. And there's this, there's this moment in Revelation chapter 4 where he describes the throne. And around the throne are 24 seats with elders sat in them. And then there are the living creatures. And the living creatures are giving praise to Jesus. And as they give praise, there's an echo that comes from the elders. And John tells us that whenever the living creatures give glory, and you get this idea that it's a repeated thing, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And it tells us earlier in that chapter that these elders are wearing golden crowns. And then he tells us here, they cast their crowns before the throne. I love this scene. Every time the living creatures worship, the elders echo it with another opportunity to get down on their faces and throw their crowns before Jesus. 
And then it seems like they must have picked them back up again, put them back on their head and sat down again and said, wait, 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 we're going to do it again. (laughs) And the living creatures praise and then the elders go, okay, here we go. We throw them back down before Jesus because they cannot, it's like they cannot contain their joy in who he is. Who do you say that I am? And they answer it, you're the one who suffered, was rejected, was killed and was raised from the dead. And so here are crowns, they're not ours, they're yours. And just over the page, it makes this even more explicit when the word, the song that these same elders are singing is like this. It says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What John sees when he looks into the courtroom of heaven and he sees the 24 elders gathered around the throne is men who have asked themselves this question, who is he? And have reckoned that the answer is, he's the worthy one. He's the lamb who was slain for us. And because of his death on our behalf, he now inherits everything. It's his. Our lives are his. Our crowns are his. The creation is his. The cosmos is his. It's all his. It's all about him. I want you to bow your heads as we pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his his life and his teaching. But also, Lord, we thank you that he was the one who willingly gave himself for us. And we can say honestly that no one has done what he has done. And Father, we pray that you would breathe spirit upon us to enable us to understand the full import and significance of that question. Who is he? Who do you say that I am? To be confronted with it. That we might answer rightly. Not only with our words, but with our lives. You're worthy of our worship, Lord Jesus. We come to you. We come to you to adore you. Amen.